Because COVID has the world a bit travel stunted, I thought I'd slap together a podcast about some of the cool places I've been researching for a different project. Most specifically, some of the farthest reaches in the world in terms of biodiversity. I thought it'd be a bit more interesting in the context of everyone locked up. Tesonilo National Park in the Riau province of Indonesia is the largest lowland rainforest on the island. Currently, it sits at 83,000 acres with the goal of expansion to 100,000. The park contains the world's highest level of vegetal biodiversity, mostly tropical vascular plant species, surpassing that even in the Amazon. It's home to many endangered animals such as elephants, tigers, and tapirs. The park suffers heavy encroachment from loggers and settlers who clear forests for crops and palm oil plantations, as well as village sites. All of these activities are strictly outlawed and controlled by large organized criminal mafias. A third to half of the forest, depending on the source, has been deforested due to logging. During drought periods too, the forest is highly susceptible to wildfires. This is a big deal. The scale of destruction of Indonesia's rainforest is so large that it is now having significant impacts on the global climate. Rainforest and peatland ecosystems store billions of tons of carbon and the demolition releases huge emissions into the atmosphere. Indonesia is now the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases after the US and China, with 85% of its emissions profile coming from rainforest and peatland degradation and loss. 5% of all global greenhouse gas emissions are now coming from Indonesia, which is more than the combined emissions from driving all the millions of cars, trucks, trains, and buses in the U.S. each year combined. And yeah, we took a boat trip out to Komodo, so that was kind of the main stuff that we did. Did you see any Komodo dragons? Yep, lots. Dude, it was rad. But yeah, so it's a super, super like arid, desert, barren sort of island. Um, and like we took a tour and we had a guide and all he has is this big stick and we're just like walking through you know the desert and like grasses and stuff with the stick and all these Komodo dragons around it's pretty cool how many people were there? oh god I have no idea probably less than a few hundred yeah I, I heard that like sometimes you go and the port is just like empty and there's like no one there but I think people live there right? like all the time? If so, not very many. Okay, like a yeah, like a small community. There's an interesting story about like one like one of the park rangers. Uh, the dragons got into his office and like I don't know if they ate him or the dragons killed the park ranger. Oh what? That's yeah, they, crazy. Like, got into his office. So it was pretty wild. So okay, so they do attack people sometimes because everything that I saw like it looked like that they were just like chilling asleep like on the dirt like they didn't look that threatening. That's I mean, crazy. Yeah, like for the most part they're they're pretty chill. Like I got a quite close to him and it was not there was it was dangerous and that you know with the potential it's very risky also you know what i mean like they yeah. would kill but it's certainly something that they can and do kill people what specifically like makes that area like unique in comparison to here like what's like something that you like specifically remember about being there that's like i don't know uh, i definitely remember how dry and like deserty it was yeah and yeah there's nothing there's nothing out there except for the dragons <laughs> like there's, I don't know, there's no city or anything. Yeah. Town or village or not. There was, like, you know, the little visitor's area. How long um is the boat ride out there? I believe our trip was three days and t- to get out there and back. And it was the roughest, scariest boat ride I've ever had in my life. Really? Yeah, it was terrifying. I was so scared and so unhappy the entire time. Because they had... um. Like, a lot of boats capsize or, like, otherwise sink, and, you know, because it's, it's a poor country. 
Um, so that was always on my mind. Uh, but the the waves up on the ocean were just huge. They were like bigger than the boat, uh, but they were swells because you know we're on the ocean, so they weren't like breaking waves. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up being fine, obviously, but I was just I was scared crapless the entire time. But there's a it's pretty cool. There's a what? Monkey forest. Oh what? <laughs> yeah, that was really neat. That was in Ubud. Oh wait, it's pretty much right on the equator, right? So it's like really hot all year round. Yeah, it doesn't really change much. Alright, now let's switch gears and go to a place entirely different, where no life can be. In 2019, scientists found a kink in the idea that where there's water, there's life, in the name of the Dalil Geothermal Springs in Ethiopia's Danakil Depression. The Dalil landscape is punctured by cratered lakes of hyperacidic, hypersaline water colored in a vibrant palette of greens, yellows, oranges, and browns. The heated pools make for a toxic, gas-saturated brine from a smoldering volcano hidden underneath the surface, making it so extreme few species of microorganisms can live there, and the discovery of each of these new species is the unveiling of a new biological marvel. But there are other places with high salinity, sulfuric acid, and otherwise undwellable conditions, one of which is the Earth's South Pole, the enormous landmass called Antarctica. Here is home to 379 lakes buried beneath miles of glacier ice, which don't freeze due to geothermal heat coming from the Earth's core. The first core of freshly frozen Lake Ellsworth on West Antarctic ice was obtained in 2013 at a depth of nearly two miles. However, as soon as the ice was pierced, water from the underlying lake gushed up the borehole, mixing it with the freon and kerosene used to keep the borehole from freezing. Lake Ellsworth has been sealed off for 20 million years. They hypothesize there are all types of unknown life forms down there, and that uncovering it could reveal climate records, like the history of the whole ice sheet. In addition to looking for life forms in the lake, they also studied the potential future impact of climate change. If the West Antarctic ice sheet completely melts, it is thought that it could raise sea levels globally by perhaps 7 meters. But that probably wouldn't occur for several hundred years. Well, I worked out of uh, McMurdo, uh, McMurdo Station. Okay. So, uh, McMurdo Station is on an area called Ross Island. Okay. Um, and it's kind of the main hub of the three U.S. bases that are there. Um, so the U.S. essentially nobody Antarctica isn't owned by any one country. Right. Um, it is considered um, like in order to put any permanent structure, it has to directly relate to science in being able. So any country can put a base down there but it has to be doing science that's forwarding Mm -hmm. um and so the u.s has three bases one is mcmurdo station one is palmer um and then one is south pole Mm -hmm. um so the essentially uh to get to mcmurdo station you have to go through new zealand um so new zealand is uh is kind of the hub to get down to McMurdo, you would go through Chile to get um, to Palmer, and then usually to get to South Pole, you would go McMurdo and then South Pole. I was there uh, from the 20th of April, or sorry, 20th of August to the 20th of February. Um, so, oh, wow. uh, it was six months, um, I mean, essentially to the day. Um, the So, the, the thing that's uh, different down there is that season-wise, um, you have, you've got the, the summer, which is 
essentially like from from memory it's somewhere between a four to six week period where <clears throat> you're you're getting more to like full-on daylight the whole time mm. um and they call that wind fly it's kind of like from the like the winter season which is full dark um to kind of like this in between where you're getting light for a couple hours a day and then a little bit more essentially it's not like necessarily setting it's it's going behind the mountains so it's kind of like a twilight and then you're starting to get more and more daylight just imagine like the sun spinning uh in an in an upside down funnel so like you're you're getting more and more daylight as it gets to high noon and then it starts like coming down from that i don't know if that makes sense That's yeah it. interesting um, but it's it's not like the sun's necessarily doing big worlds around you it's just like it's for the majority of the time i was there it was sunny and it was um I went down during windfly, which is the the period, or what they call the period between the uh, the winter and the summer, where they open up a lot of the stations that uh, parts of the station that have been winterized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I first went down there, um, I was working as a car- well, I was working as a carpenter the entire time. But the um, when I was first down there, like it was still super cold. Um, like I, the coldest I experienced was negative 76. Um, and the, uh, to the point where it was like, you work outside even briefly and then you hop back inside or in a vehicle, warm up for a few minutes, work outside briefly. And that's the way it just has to be done because it's so cold. Wow. Um, and then on the flip side of that, like, at the, the like toward the end where it was um, generally things were warming up before uh, that kind of same period where it winds down and the sun starts being behind the mountains more um, like we were working in t-shirts in 40 degree weather because it was so warm <laughs> how your body uh, how your body kind of adjusts to what's going on yeah there's no green no green. And I, I say that just because, like, you think about being here, like, might be in the mountains and, like, have, like, like high altitude. Like, there's there's even just, uh, like, some moss in the ground. Mm-hmm. Or, like, there's, like, in winter, there's still evergreen. Like, there's there's no green. Like, there's just, you, you miss... Like, there's essentially, like, the color of rock, the color of snow, and uh, water and sky. Like, those are your colors. Yeah. Um, so it's, it was very different being somebody who loves the outdoors, being in a, in a position like that, because it, uh, it, it kind of screws with your head in that sense. Um, and then on top of that, being there where I worked at one point at, uh, for a series of weeks on the midnight shift, but it was like it was high noon. 
Oh, weird. Like, it's always sunny. We There was a fire department. Um, so we, because if you think down there, everything is so dry, everything is so cold. Like, it, um, if anything is set ablaze, it burns. Like, it's, it's windy, it's cold, it's dry. Yeah. So, like, essentially what happens to buildings, um, they need regular maintenance and everything else. If they, um, you know, if, if any of that wood stuff ends up catching on fire, it's a huge problem because, like, it's very hard to stem any fire um, just because of the environment. Yeah, I can um, imagine. So there's there's a full fire department that also work as a search and rescue. Hmm. So there's um, there are other people on base who are um, trained in search and rescue, but a lot of the fire department works as in duality with that. And there's two shifts of them so that they are on and off at different times. Um, there's a doctor. There's a dentist. Uh, there's a um, somebody who cuts your hair there's a whole slew of folks that are um, just in engineering who take care of a power plant that's there um, there's folks that are doing nothing but um, being in essentially like in a communications position tracking where all, all the vehicles are where all the expeditions are um, doing regular um communication with those folks um, and then having an emergency system uh, that's both uh, over walkie-talkies and uh, sound phones but also like within the buildings telling you if like there's an impending storm or anything else um, there's uh, a full carpentry crew that works on maintenance, preventive maintenance and supporting all the science that goes out You've got the the lab that is full on science, uh, doing different scientific experiments, um, and so like there are all these divisions, and then there's one like main building that uh, is where like essentially it works for food, like a galley. Mm-hmm. Um, you go in, and there's folks that are just cooking uh, and then cleaning everything up consistently so like you've got this big kind of dining room and you just go in and you you get anything that you um that you need essentially you just you fill up because you've burned so many calories down there because it's so cold like your body's just continuously burning because it's trying to keep warm yeah um if something malfunctions and the plane goes down like you need to be in the stuff that's going to keep you alive. Right. Um, so, like, the bunny boots, which are, like, they're, they're different kind of, like, high-insulating boots that keep you warm. The, like, the wind pants, the um, the red jacket that has the, the furry top on it, um, the goggles and everything else. So, you've got uh, just really intense gloves. Um, Especially if you're if you're flying, you need to have it on. If you're in a vehicle, you need to have it 
readily accessible with you anything that you're not wearing directly so you might like take off the jacket as you're driving but like you need to have it right there in case the vehicle breaks down mm. um so it's it, there's just uh, there's a lot in there and so normally like under under that like you've got a set of thermals on um That's it. I hope that was interesting. Stay in, stay safe. Peace.